Again, this is Everett, producer of The Scalpel with Dr. Keith Rose. About to set off into an, another excursion into the mind of Dr. Keith Rose. What's interesting about that is, you know, if you're listening to this, you found this podcast, you know, at any time in our history, even if it's your first time, you're going to find uh, a resonance with what Dr. Rose and his guest today will be discussing and, uh, and yourself. So really, this is an excursion into your own mind, perhaps your soul. Best way to find out is to hang around, listen to this episode, like it, share it, catch any previous episode of The Scalpel at scalpeledge.com. What we have for you today is a special guest, Pastor Rob McCoy of Godspeak Calvary Chapel. Now, obviously this episode is recorded. I've heard this conversation and let me tell you what uh, my, my immediate response to this, I, a little about me, I hated school. I did not like high school at all. I could not understand why anybody would pay after high school to continue to go to school. That was just me. Not saying there's anything wrong if you do go to college. I didn't. I did other things. The reason I didn't like school was because I felt like I was often taught from people who they didn't really care about the subject they were teaching. But occasionally, I would have a teacher that was different. The example that I'll give you had to do with history. When I was in high school, I, I just I did not care about history. I didn't know why it mattered until I had a teacher who showed me why. That is what we have for you today from Keith and Pastor Rob. Why? Why it matters. We couldn't be more happy that you're here. Here we go. The Scalpel with Dr. Keith Rose. Cutting down to the truth through history and experience. Subscribe to The Scalpel wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at The Scalpel Podcast, on Twitter at The Scalpel Edge, or the website, scalpeledge.com. The next episode of The Scalpel starts now. Welcome to The Scalpel. This is Dr. Keith Rose. We have a very special guest today, a guest that's actually with me at an undisclosed location, who came to visit and just have fellowship and and full disclosure, this is someone that I really look up to. He's one of my mentors. He's a man that is very wise and also very brave and courageous. You've probably heard me talk about him before. This is Pastor Rob McCoy from Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, California. And for those of my listeners that don't know you, Rob, give me a little background. And uh, welcome. Oh yeah, Thanks. Thanks, Keith. A background, uh, born and raised in San Diego, California, a town called Coronado. Um, swam, uh, was a student athlete, went to Fresno State, became a Christian in college, um, worked in the industry for a while, sales, and then went into the ministry. Um, and a whole series of events regarding that. But uh, Michelle and I are married 33 years, got five kids, and... Um, <clears throat> I was a former mayor of the city of Thousand Oaks, a city council member, but I, my greatest joy, uh, first foremost, is being uh, husband to Michelle and father to my kids, but um, 
the, the joy after that is pastoring the same fellowship now for gosh, 23 years. And, uh, that's, that's what I do. <clears throat> and when you and I first met, I, it was actually before COVID. Yeah. But well, it was, it was like almost right when it was hitting. Almost right when it was hitting. We, we were in Mar-a-Lago when Bolsonaro from Brazil came in with the president, President Trump. And That's president right. We were with Charlie Kirk. Yeah, and they said somebody in his entourage had COVID. Yeah. yeah and and then that was, that was like the big news. Yeah, somebody had a cold. Yeah, someone had a cold <laughs> and we weren't quite sure what was going on. But, you know, I was tucked away safely in a mostly free state, although Governor Abbott failed on COVID miserably. But you were living in the communist state of California. With Governor Mussolini. Yes, Governor Mussolini. And I, I remember when COVID first became a big deal. Now, prior to COVID, the first few months before COVID hit, you had Nancy Pelosi and all the members of Congress on the Democrat side telling people to go to Chinatown. It was really weird. They were all over the news saying, go to Chinatown. There's nothing out there. It's safe. You know, do this, and I've got the I've got the receipts to show that I've played them on this show, but then COVID hit, and something happened that we've never had happen in the history of medicine or the history of the church, and that is we we locked down in medicine. We told people to to stay in. We we actually quarantined healthy people, and. One of the things I discovered doing early research was that you were more likely to get COVID with repeat exposure. So we were basically quarantining people so they could get COVID. And, of course, we kept the – I say we, the government kept the strip clubs open and the gambling joints and things like that. Liquor stores. Liquor stores. But they told the churches they had to shutter. And, unfortunately, it revealed – I, I have a dear friend, and he's been on this show, Kevin Leal, and Kevin, I tell Kevin, I talked to him about this, and he said, COVID was, people call COVID a demon. He said, COVID revealed the state of the church. He said it, it really showed the churches that shuddered or the, the very few pastors that stood, but you were one of them. And it wasn't like, I'm, my pastor stood, but you stood in a state where the penalties were harsh. And it, and it could have, you, it could have, from a world's point of view, ruined yourself, your family, your livelihood, everything. Yet you stood. And I, I've often said, in the absence of courage, truth is an orphan. And you stood for truth. But when we were talking about this for the listeners the other day, we, I was asking you about this, and you were on a fireside chat with Dennis Prager. And he asked you the same question. And I had not heard that fireside chat. You played it for me. And when I heard it, it blew my mind. But more importantly, I saw the video. It blew Dennis Prager's mind. I mean, Prager was speechless, which I've never seen Dennis Prager speechless in my entire life with your answer. So build out for our audience your answer to Dennis Prager and why you chose to keep the church open. Well, thanks, Keith. That's that's an, a wonderful setup. Um, before I answer it, I just want to tell you that had you said that I, because of the draconian measures of the governor and and the things that I faced, if I didn't open the church, I would have put my family in jeopardy and my kids in jeopardy. Um, I, I wasn't fearful of what the governor or the county would do to me. I was fearful of of not defending the truth. 
we knew the severity of the virus. We, we knew that it was, you know, 99% survival. It was, it was a cold for all intents and purposes for, for some, for others, 65 and older with comorbidities, it was concerning. And, and let me interject. Yeah. The same thing with the flu is right. with comorbidities. It's a right. high mortality high rate mortality. in the elderly with. Yeah. With and so, so I, you know, I, I did that for my kids. And, and, um, so what Dennis Prager asked me, he invited me on his fireside chat and he typically doesn't have guests on his fireside chat. Cause he just likes to have that intimacy with the audience, but time and again, he'll, he'll bring somebody on that he connects with. And, and Dennis and I are friends. I, I mean, I, I can, I can say with all sincerity, I, I, I love that man. I adore him. I know um, you do because you've told me in private. Yeah. You, yeah. You've said, cause I, we've had conversations about this. And, um, and so we, we've developed a friendship over the years. We sat down and he asked me a question that I, I sincerely wasn't prepared for. He said, were you born courageous? How did you get this way? And I, I mean, that's Dennis. He asked great questions that just throw you off. And I just sat there for a minute and I thought about it and, and my, my heart was full. I, I got a little overwhelmed and I started to tell him a story. I said, you know, Dennis, I, I was selfish as a young man. And he goes, who, who hasn't been? And he's, and, and I said, uh, I was an athlete, so I was disciplined, but courageous that, that wasn't intrinsic to me. Um, but I said, I was named after my godfather and his name is Robert early, Robert Broussard early. He was a rear admiral in the United States Navy. Uh, he it was actually, he lived to be a hundred years old and he was 99 when I was running for the state assembly in California. It was my first adventure or venture into politics to uh, run for the state assembly. And I didn't know my elbow from my earlobe when it came to politics, uh, but I couldn't take people where I wasn't willing to go myself. And, and the church had abdicated its responsibility in the public square. And so I was trying to get the congregation more involved in what I call the ecclesia, the, the public square. And so I, I ran for the state assembly and um, I was getting carpet bombed by my own party in the primary. I had, uh, they, they, they gave my opponent a million dollars in the primary, my, the, the Republican <laughs> party. I'd been a Republican longer than I'd been a Christian longer than I'd been a husband, a father. I'd walk precincts when I was little and my own party in California in a primary is gave spent, your your opponent, opponent a million yeah. dollars, and he, and I was the I was the last Republican standing against the Democrat uh, incumbent. The other two had had stepped out, and two days before the filing period closed, they put up a twenty three year old Hispanic and gave him a million dollars because they didn't want a white evangelical Christian running in you know Oxnard, which is plus twenty two Democrat, mostly Hispanic, and I, I get it. But you don't give somebody a million dollars in a primary from from the the party the 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 central party there, and it's just not fair. Well, I beat him, but it took all my resources. And and, you didn't have anything for them. Yeah. Election. So now we go into the general election, and I they spent the Democrats spent six point two million dollars against me in a lower house state seat, which is crazy. I mean, most congressional districts don't spend six million dollars, and this was for a lower house of of the state. You know the state assembly. So I'm getting carpet bombed by my own party. I'm out of money and my godfather is turning a hundred and I'm going to miss his birthday. 
So I figure I'm out of money. I don't want to go out to my mailbox and see another hit piece. My car's already been keyed. Windows have been broken. We've already gotten the death threats and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to leave thousands. From the tolerant Democrat Party. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Peace I'm gonna, and love. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to leave Thousand Oaks and drive down to Coronado, California, where I was born and raised, and go see my godfather, who's lived in the same house for all 50 years of my life. And at the time, he's 99 years young, and he's the oldest, no, excuse me, he's the highest ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a lieutenant on the USS Casson on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And now he's living and he's, you know, he's 99 and he's retired as a rear admiral and his wife had passed Lois, who was my godmother. And so I go down there and he, and at 99, Keith, he's still driving, not, not well, but he's driving. And he's also doing a hundred sit-ups a day in increments. Cause he said, movement is life. He was just full of life. And I get down there and I sit down and, and my, my mom had died from uh, botched lung cancer surgery. And my dad was in a home with Alzheimer's. So my, my godfather, for all intents and purposes, was a patriarch. And I get to his home. I sit down and he looks at me. He's got a booming voice. He says, how's it going? And, and I just started whining. And I said, Uncle Bob, I feel like I've led my, my congregation on a rosy road to nowhere. Uh, my, my, my party is carpet bombing me. I'm out of money. Um, California's going to hell in a handbag. And I'm just laying out all these, you know, lamenting statements. And he puts his hand up. And the story I'm telling you right now is a story I told Dennis. And and my my godfather puts his hand up. And it's shaking with age. But he, he puts it like a, you know, stop. And he, he yells at me. I've never heard him angry in 50 years. And he said, stop it. And it paralyzed me. There's nothing like being spanked by a 99-year-old man. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, Rob, you don't know tough. He said, I, 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 was, I was 16 years old during the Great Depression. We didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. And had it not been an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never been able to afford a college education. And he said, you being a history major, Rob, you, you don't realize we had the 17th largest military because we were in isolationist mode. Prior to World War II. Prior to World War II. He said, and on that day, December 7th, 1941, they sank half our Pacific fleet. The, the harbor was on fire. My ship was sunk. And I was pulling my shipmates out of the water dead. He said, the next day we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations. We lifted that fleet from the bottom of, of, of the ocean and, and refitted it and floated into Tokyo for the surrender of the Japanese. And this is what I'll never forget. He said, Rob, we, were, we weren't occupiers. We were liberators. We only asked for enough ground to bury our dead. We set up constitutional republics in both nations and came back and started the greatest industrial revolution in your lifetime. He said, now quit whining and go finish what you started. And it just, you know, it hit me. And I'm named after him. You know, he's bigger than life. He lived to 100. He fell asleep in that chair. He got every ounce of living out of that, that body. And, and, and I, I was telling Dennis this story, and I said, it's, it's folks like that that have inspired me. And I said, you know, I grew up in Coronado where we had naval officers. One in particular was Admiral James Stockdale, who was a vice presidential running mate to Ross Perot. He was the highest uh, awarded officer in, in, in the Vietnam War, Medal of Honor, and he was in the Hanoi Hilton. And his leg was broken and fused. And so when we'd have the Christmas party in Coronado, he and Sybil Shepherd, his leg would have to be out straight. And we'd have to, it was a crowded party, so people would have to go around. We had to set up a chair specifically for him so people wouldn't trip over his leg. 
Another man was um, Captain James Stark, who had ejected out of his A6, broke his left arm, and set it in the in the bars of the Hanoi Hilton. And when I'd run with him on the beach, his, his arm would be fused. He had an enormous scar on his back where they hung him on a meat hook. And, and these were the men that I grew up with. And then finally, my mother walked precincts. She was very active in the party. Uh, she was president of, of the Republican women. My dad was president of the chamber of the Rotary, ran for city council. We weren't churchgoers, but we were actively involved in our community. And, and they love this country. And that's what I grew up witnessing. And, and I told Dennis, I said, you know, Dennis, it was 1975, um, Memorial Day. It was a three-day weekend. I was, um, I was 10. And I was looking forward to going and hanging out with my friends. And my dad, you know, I was the youngest of four and, and the sibling closest to me was seven years, you know, older. So they were a, 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 a planet and I was a moon that revolved around my siblings. Right, you were the little kid. Yeah, I was a, the oops baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really know my dad because in my formative years, he'd had two, I think maybe even three tours of Vietnam. He was a foreigner to me. And now he's back. It's 1975. And he tells me to get in the car. And, you know, I was I was not scared of him. I just didn't know him. And I get in the car and we begin to drive north on I-5 up to Camp Pendleton, the Marine Corps base. We go through the guard gate and my dad gets a crisp salute as a Navy captain, which is the equivalent of a colonel in the Marine Corps. We drive into the bowels of Camp Pendleton and we, we come over a ridge and I see tents, Keith, as far as the eye can see. It's a sea of tents, tent city. And we get out and we walk up to a table that is staffed by Marine guards and my dad has a piece of paper and he gives it to them and they begin to look through these um, file cabinets or uh, card catalogs and they give my dad the directions in this tent city of where to go in, in, in regards to the information he had on the sheet he gave them and my dad and I begin to walk through this this tent city and it was smells and sounds I'd never heard in my 10 years on this earth because it was it was a tent city of all the Vietnamese refugees who had lost their country we get to a tent. And but that had helped the U.S. That had helped the U.S., yeah. So we, they took, they brought them back. Yeah, the fall of Saigon, and they right. all brought them in. So um, we get in front of this one tent, and, and um, uh, a Vietnamese man comes out, and he salutes my father. And, and I'll never forget, my dad says, Major Nguyen, there's no more saluting your family now. He said, let's go home. He says, Captain, since the last time we talked, I married and my wife is with me. He says, go get your wife and let's go home. We're family. And out comes Mrs. Nguyen. She's younger than the major. She's from a rural village in Vietnam. She doesn't speak any English like the major does. And she's scared to death. You could just see she's shaking. This is all new to her. My, <sighs> my dad gets in the car with the major in the front seat and they're talking and I'm in the back seat with Mrs. Nguyen and we're doing sign language and I'm just trying to make her laugh. And we, we became friends. She's still living. The major's passed. I'm sorry, Keith. No, that's okay. I mean, it's like it was yesterday. No, I, I can see that. Yeah, so we get home. My mother was a meticulous housekeeper. She would vacuum the carpets and you'd have lines in the carpet. You had to fly from one room to the next so as not to mess up the lines. And they just remodeled their kitchen and spent a fortune and new carpet and, and appliances. Your mom was very neat. Very neat. She was, yeah, neurotically neat. Right, yeah. And you, you didn't, my mother forbid the smell of fried food in her house, specifically fish. 
I mean, you just couldn't do it. And I come home and, and, and Mrs. Nguyen is trying to impress her, her new husband and she's frying fish on this, this new stove and the house just smells awful. And I'm thinking, you're going to die. <laughs> and and the, the pan catches fire. And she does what any woman would do in a rural village, I imagine, in Vietnam. She kicks it into the dirt, which happens to be the new carpet. And it catches fire. And I'm watching this unfold before my 10-year-old eyes. And my mother kneels down and helps her put out the fire and holds her. She's shaking. And I was confused and I, I just said, mom, I don't understand later when I talked to her, why didn't you get angry at her? And she said, Rob, they've lost their country. We can replace the carpet. And, and I told Dennis, I just said, those are the kind of people that inspire me because a nation grows great whose citizens plant trees, the shade they'll never know. I, I didn't do it for me. I did it for my kids and my grandkids. And, and the realization is the people I've grown up around have always been selfless and have paved the way for me to enjoy the freedoms and liberty I now have. And I can't let it die on my watch. And I said, you know, um, I, I, I said, that's the reason why I love you, Dennis, because it, it, he's selfless in that respect. And that's, I guess, what made him speechless. I, yeah, I... <laughs> For those of you that haven't seen it, it's Fireside Chat number what? Uh, 188. 188. And I, when, I sh when I was watching it, when you finish your story and you just said it like you did right now, and I appreciate your candor and your, your passion, Dennis goes, he didn't say anything. He froze. He, it's like he started to talk and he couldn't talk. And then he goes, I have nothing to add to that. Hmm. And I've never heard Dennis Prager say he had nothing to add because Dennis always has something to add. And he's a brilliant guy. I mean, usually it's, he's amazing. you, you know, he steps in and, and, and lays down some serious heat, intellectual heat. Yeah. And I, I when I heard that story, it, it touched me a lot. And I know you. I know how brave you are. And I know what a godly man you are. Not you don't wear it on your sleeve. You live it in your life. And your fruit is evident. Your children are amazing. I had the true honor of being at your son's wedding and joining your family with the Badarinko family. And it's just been an honor in this journey to get to know you because I think we're going now on you know our three year yeah. three year anniversary. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, when you told me that story, we were in the car and we saw the fireside chat. We listened to it. Last night we had our family dinner. That was fun. House. You got to go to my son's wedding. I got to sit and observe your family dinner. And that was yeah, cool. family dinner. And in full disclosure, at our house, we just open the table and people bring friends. Our kids come back, which whichever in town, whoever. And one of my sons, who I love dearly, is a political science major at a university. He's very passionate conservative. I mean, he is passionate, and he loves history. And you blew him away last night because I've never heard him speak. He's like Dennis Prager, but much younger and not as wise because he hasn't lived long enough yet. And um, you, you, we were, I was having trouble getting through to him about 
understanding what's going on in the world from the optic of a biblical kingdom ambition relationship. And you left the room and you came back and you handed him something and just describe what happened because I thought it was fascinating. You know. Well, I, I, I saw you trying to reach him and I saw him trying to impress you and you were both talking past each other um, because, you know, it, it's just how life is. And as I was observing it, I, I remember so much that you told me about him is, and, and I had met him before, but his makeup that he's drawn by historical things and, and it, the Lord put it on my heart that a gift opens up the way for the giver. And so I got up and I went into my room and I, I, I carry these with me because they're significant to me. But I found the best one I could find, which was a real shiny steel one. And it was a 1943 steel penny. And I said, Ryan, I have a gift for you. And I said, um, in 1943, we were at war with two fascist nations and we needed copper for bullets to win the war. So we took the most circulated coin in America, which was the penny that was made out of copper and suspended it from being made out of copper for one year and made them out of steel so that we could win the war. And I said, and I got you a steel penny and I put it in his hand and I said, and, and he, he started talking. I said, wait, wait, wait. The moral of it is when you're at war, it requires sacrifices. Thank you for yours because he has been involved in so many races in Texas, especially as an intern and a volunteer. And, and he's, you know, he's passionate about it. And he got excited about it. And then I gave everybody at the table one that wasn't as shiny as the one I gave him. And then we started talking. And then I segued into the why and what he's doing. And I said, what? Well, conservatism what are you conserving what are you saving because he was lamenting that there's no hope for the nation and i said yeah it almost seems insurmountable and i took him back to the history of of the u.s 19 or 1776 valley forge the continental army is decimated a third of them are dying of dysentery a third have their feet wrapped in burlap sacks and boots the war was over for all intents and purposes. The greatest nation on the face of the earth had just defeated the second greatest nation, which England had defeated France, and now England is going to just run roughshod over the colonies. And only one in nine Americans fought in the revolution. So I'm telling him this. <clears throat> I said, how did they pull it off? We've had almost 250 years of unprecedented freedom. I mean, basically, if you ride in an elevator, it's invented by an American. If you enjoyed air conditioning, it's invented by an American. If you fly in an airplane, it's invented by an American. It's because we have freedom, unprecedented. How did this happen? Right. The youngest country in the world with the oldest constitution. We're the youngest country in, in the world, but we're the old. Well, you, you, you can't. We, Israel's younger. There's a couple well, of in other. In Pakistan, but yeah, yeah I get you. We're, we're the, we're, but we're the oldest. We're the, we're the country that's had the, the oldest country under one declaration right. article. Unchanged of, constitution. Of, yeah, of, yeah. So we've been under one article for incorporation, which is a declaration of independence in the constitution. And so I was telling him this and I said, um, they, God's invoked four times in the declaration of independence. They appealed to him. And, and he gave man the sovereignty in, in, in the first three words of the preamble, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. The purpose of government and politics is the highest form of community, combines morality with sociability, 
you can't do a conservative movement and preserve something that you know nothing about because government designs civil law and, and civil law without moral law is enslavement. And, and I said, if I said, Ryan, if you really want to preserve the conservative understanding of freedom, the freedom is the wise restraints that make men free, which is the law. The law is the wise restraints that make men free. The moral law, when applied, allows the civil law to give man freedom. But when you remove the moral law, the civil law becomes a weapon to enslave man. I've, like, I've, we've been through that in California with tyranny. Like a police state. Like a police state. And I said, what is the moral law, Ryan? He goes, I, I, you know, he kind of fumbled a little bit. I said, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, can you name them? And God bless that kid. He, he didn't do them in order, but he labored through them, which speaks volumes to me about you, Keith, that you taught your, your children the moral law. And I said, let me make it simple for you. I said, I held up one finger. I said, one God. And then I had two fingers and I took the second finger and bent it. I said, no idols. Don't bend down and worship them. I held up three fingers and I put it over my mouth and I said, don't take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. I had four fingers and I said, remember the Sabbath day. And I used it as a pillow and put my head on it. Keep the Sabbath day holy. And then I had five and I saluted and I said, honor your mother and father. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the, on the earth. It's the only commandment that comes with a promise. Six is don't murder. And I made the form of a gun with the sixth commandment. And then seven, I held up two fingers and five fingers. And I said, don't commit adultery. There's only two in a marriage, not five. And then I held up for eight. I had four and four with my thumbs missing. I said, don't steal because you get your thumbs cut off. And then I held up five. I said, it's four, not five. Don't bear false witness. And then 10 is don't covet as I began to grab for stuff with two hands. It's easy to memorize, but from the moral law, every civil law you make is going to be established. He got it. He got it. And it was, it was like an epiphany for him. I, I just said, Ryan, that's the why and what you're doing. And he got excited about that. And it, you did too. I, I did. And, and then tell, uh, keep going because you gave him some good advice if someone comes to ask him for right. support and yeah. things like that. When any, when, because when you're in politics, people come and they want you to endorse them. And I will not endorse a candidate. And I've, I've run for office. I've, I've had four elections and won three of them. So I'm batting 750. I was a city councilman, reelected. I, I became mayor. I'd run for assembly, won a primary, lost the general. Um, so, but I've, I've done well. And I said, when people come and seek my endorsement, I asked them three things. I said, name the Decalogue, recite it for me. And two, how many articles are in the U.S. Constitution? And three, how many amendments are there? If that c candidate can't answer that, I tell them, you don't get my endorsement and I will not support you until you learn that. And here's why. From the Decalogue, the moral law will come every decision you make. That must be the governing principle of your life. Learn it. Secondly, the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, when you swear to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, how can you defend something you know nothing about? And that Constitution doesn't give us any rights. It protects the rights given to us by God that you are not permitted to usurp because you're constrained by those seven articles. Memorize them. And then the 27 amendments, I said to Ryan, I said, let me give you an example. When our founders created this nation with a bicameral legislature, a house and a Senate, the lower and the upper house, the House of Representatives was the only body that the, the people of America were allowed to elect directly. The House then appointed the senators from their state and the Electoral College appointed the president and the president appointed the judiciary. 
So the executive branch was from the the electoral college. The judiciary branch was appointed by the president, but the legislative body, the the upper house was appointed by the lower house, but the lower house was elected by we, the people. The lower house had power because they controlled the money and they were the only direct representatives we had in a constitutional republic. And they wrote in our birth certificate, these are the time, or when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one piece, it's poetic and beautiful, the declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For this purpose, governments were instituted among men. It's powerful. Even the preamble of the Constitution is beautiful. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. But the First Amendment, the very First Amendment that our founders established was prohibitive, caustic, and mean in the sense that it it turned and it, it said, Congress. And it was almost like you could see them pointing a finger and right, shaking right. it. it, it was a, it was a command. It was a command. And it, but it, 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 was, it was intense. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You will never get between God and man worshiping him ever, period. That's profound because our founders understood as they searched the annals of history that no government in in history would ever suffice. And when they took three days of fasting and prayer with Benjamin Franklin and came back with a bicameral legislature after praying, that that changed the whole whole game. Three days of prayer and fasting. fasting. And you know, you think about this, our founders... And you and I have talked about this, Benjamin Franklin's speech. He Mm -hmm. said, we have, I'm paraphrasing, we have looked at governments both past Mm -hmm. and present and find none suitable Suitable. for our purpose. For all have sown the seeds of their own dissolution. The only things in the past that worked were the earthly governments or kingdoms that claimed God was king. Mm-hmm. Those are the only ones that, and, and when they quit doing that, they all fell. And so that makes sense that our founders, not perfect men, but worshiped a perfect God. Yeah. And even the ones that were deists, even the ones that weren't quite sure about it, knew that the Decalogue was the only way to maintain that morality and virtue were the only things that could keep this nation. I mean, there are so many quotes on, you know, morality and virtue. You have no, I'm paraphrasing again, I believe it was Patrick Henry who said, if you ever become, if you ever lose your virtue, you'll, you, you'll, it's like trying to catch a whale with a net, you know, you, you can't do it. You'll never keep your nation. Yeah. The, the, the triangle of freedom, faith, virtue, freedom, it's a three-legged stool. Even when you look at the Supreme Court building and they don't tell you this today and they'd love to remove it from the edifice of the Supreme Court building, but it's Moses holding the, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. From the moral law comes civil law. And and emblazoned in the stairwell at Harvard University Law School, uh, which is a, um, a line out of a commencement speech that was dur- done just at the turn of the 1900s. And, and they invoke it every year at the graduation of the Harvard Law School. And it says, the law is the wise restraints that make men free. And you think, how do restraints make you free? And, and Ryan got it. 
he, he, you know, you apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Any athlete understands a statement. Yeah, because we don't. Ha- when I played football, Baylor, I had no life. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have a social life. Yeah, your friends go out partying, but you apply restraints because if you want to stand on the victory block, you have to you have to apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Yeah, I, my uh, someone told me one time if you want to perform and live like no one and 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 excel like no one else, you have to live like no one else. You have to have those restraints in your life. If you, you know, Dave Ramsey even talks about you have like to that guy. save like no one else. Yeah. You know, if you want to live like no one else, and 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 unfortunately, our society we've talked about this a lot have undermined the basic principle of actions and consequences, mm-hmm. and they have removed the consequences from inaction. It used to be if you didn't work, you didn't eat. We, you know, you didn't have the social safety net until the 60s. But people didn't starve to death because the church stepped in. There was so much goodness and and the people moving. With the benevolent with the benevolence came accountability. Correct. You had to be accountable. You know, Keith, you you opened the, the program by saying we're in an undisclosed location. I'm gonna I'm going to reveal you a little bit. We're at your office and it's early in the morning and and you went to bed. I mean, last night I stayed up later than you did. You went to bed and I remember as you were leaving because I've been staying with you and you're in bed early almost every night. And and I go, that's amazing because when I preach on Sunday, I can have a house full of people, but I turn to him and I go, I'm going to go take a nap because that's my Sabbath. I'm going to, I've got to recharge those batteries, a deep recharge. And I, I just leave whoever's at the house. They understand. And everyone who's visiting your home understands Keith goes to bed early because he's waking up to do surgery on people that that he wants to give his best for. And so for us to be able to do this this podcast, we have to get up even earlier to right. do that because you're going into you're going to be doing surgery here shortly. Yes. And uh, I, I mean, that is the idea of restraint in order to pursue excellence. People are counting on your skills that are excellent because you've applied restraints to be prepared for that. You. And, and by the way, when you put in restraints and, and you do the right thing, then you end up, freedom is having choices. So, so the, the more restraint you put towards evil to pursue excellence, the more options and choices you have in life. You, you're, you're not dependent on others because you've applied restraint to learn a, a system so that you can now be educated and have more options. And, and I, I just think that's fascinating. And I'll, I'll leave you with this one. It's one that um, Bob McEwen, Congressman McEwen shared. He said, the difference between morality and character, morality is not doing what's wrong. And that's good. But character is doing what's right. So if your child comes home from school and says, mommy, daddy, all the kids in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. They'd say, well, that's the moral thing to do, child, but where's your character? And she said, what do you mean, mom? What do you mean, dad? Why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? Character is the thing that gives us freedom when we stand for the right. You, 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 a liberty, as it says in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. When you do the right thing, you'll have choices. Right, and when the spirit of the Lord is, it, the Bible speaks to this, it's the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're driven, your internal energy source is supernatural, 
honoring God, Christ the King inside of me, the hope of glory. And a lot of people look at the kingdom of God as something that is, you know, in the afterlife. Yeah, when I die, I'll go and be in God's kingdom. But when Christ came, died, rose again, he preached the next 40 days, nothing but the kingdom of God here, the yeah. kingdom of God now, the kingdom of God is within you. And there, we're in a spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And... The kingdom of God is all-inclusive. God says, I came to, to the poor, economical. I came to the Scathian and the uh, – you'll, you'll know the Bible that he talks about ideologies. He talks about cultures. He came to all of this because the kingdom of God is truly the only all-inclusive kingdom because we all come with Christ the King inside of us. And we can all live in the kingdom as free people with lots of choices as long as we keep the moral law. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And translated, it's his moral righteousness. Yeah, being right and, with God. Right. And then all these things are added to you. But the, also the Bible's true in the negative. If you don't seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things are taken from you, and those are your choices. Those yeah. are the way you live. And, and that's why we have the things happening today where people are like, I don't know how this happened. The church abdicated the moral law. And, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect um, – I'll give you evidence of that. On a Sunday, ask anyone to recite the Ten Commandments that you 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 believe to be a really devout Christian. Ask them to recite the Ten Commandments. Now, God commanded we memorize that, have our children memorize it, and our grandchildren. And as we go out, that it's always on our mind with everything we put our hand to. The phylacteries that the Orthodox Jews use, whatever your hand touches, make sure that that those commandments are are a guarding principle for you on your mind in the frontlets, which is the phylacteries. And, and I'm not saying it because the law doesn't save, but the evangelical church, what they did is they said, you know, the law is only there to show us that we can't keep it and that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so they abandon the moral law because they don't do politics because politics is dirty. Yet politics is the highest form of community. It combines morality with sociability. If God didn't intend us to be in politics, he would have never have invented marriage. We have to get along and figure out what the, the rules are. And God gave us the rules. And so this moral law, it, fascinating, Christians have abdicated it. But Galatians 3 tells us what it is. Yes, the law doesn't save, but Galatians 3 tells us the purpose of the law. The law is a guardian, a school teacher to point us to Christ until faith comes. Get everybody rowing in the streams of liberty. Exactly. And we must step into the public square, apply these moral principles to every civil law. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, which is a second great commandment, then you're going to establish civil law that will allow them to flourish and be pointed to Christ. Quit, quit making excuses as to why you don't know, know or want to know what the issues are we're facing and you just want to put your head in the sand and play your eschatology and let everything go to hell in a handbag. Step into the public square and contend for the welfare of your neighbor. That's beautiful and it's true. See, the truth rings. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that's true. And the church, unfortunately, has abdicated their role in the ecclesia, in the public square. I am... Um, 
you know, you have all these problems in the Middle East right now. And I remember being in the Middle East. Actually, we were in Lebanon during, I believe it was around 1975, and war broke out. It really, the sectarian violence in Lebanon broke out. And my father, we were staying at a hotel in Beirut. He, I, I remember hearing it was, I thought it was a thunderstorm that night, but it's really bombs and missiles or rockets. And I was waking up, woken up really early by a phone. Those are those things with cords, and they used to have dials on them back in 1995. You those, never wanted to answer them. You never wanted to answer them. <laughs> and I answered it because my brother and I, I was 10, he was 9 or 8, and we're 22 months apart. And we were staying by ourselves because my dad led the tour group, and we handled our own passports. You know, this was back when kids had to be responsible. And dad said, get your little brother, get your passport, your bags, meet us downstairs. It's four in the morning, and they, and they and I said the appropriate answer, a little sleepily, but yes, sir. We go downstairs. Dad gathers up the group and says, there's been an incident, and we're going to go accelerate our tour. We're going to go ahead and go on to Israel, but we're going to go through Syria first. So we all loaded up the tour buses, and there were so many people. They took a few extras that were there that my dad and mom had to follow in a taxi, and that's a whole other story. But we drove literally for 26 hours. Only stopping to go to the restroom, drink water. I mean, we didn't stop to eat or anything else. Yeah. And we were passing blown out buildings. We ended up in Damascus, Syria. And instead of going through the main terminal of the airport, someone cut the lock on the gate. We were escorted by two technicals. You know, I don't know who they were. My dad did. And technicals are jeeps with machine guns on the back. Right. And um, we were taken onto the tarmac where I don't remember the name of the airlines, but it was a bit, I know now it was a 737 was waiting there. And back then you didn't have the, the way, the entryways you had indoors. You had the gang, the, the, you walked the, yeah, steps. Up the stairs, the you ones up that the stairs. President Bright Biden trips on. Yes. You yeah. go up the stairs and everyone loaded this plane and it was so loaded that my brother and I being the youngest were standing in the aisle when it took off. And, you know, this is back when people could smoke on the plane. And some people were chain smoking on the plane. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. You should have ashtrays on the airplane. I remember. And um, so anyway, I remember. And the sun's just not coming up yet, but you can see the light breaking on the horizon. And the plane's rotating off into the night. And my father has been very quiet and stoic the entire time. And he's sitting next to my mother. My brother and I are standing next to them. And my dad opened the window shade in the airplane. And as we pulled out, he said, son, I want you to look at something. He says, you see that? And it was still dark, even though the sky was getting yeah. a little light. And it looked like a giant snake of lights. As far as I could see, just, and it, they were bus after bus. I didn't, my dad told me they were with tour buses, but it looked like a, a traffic jam of buses. As far as you could see coming, probably now I know distances, probably about 20, 30 miles from the airport that were coming into the airport. And he says, those are all tour buses like ours. Every tour guide was told, leave the country at 4 a.m. And he said, some did, and they're the ones that got on these airplanes. He said, some decided to wait and see what the others were going to do. And I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he says, you know how I always tell you you're responsible for your actions and, the, and there's consequences to your actions? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you're also responsible for your inaction mm. because those people may not make it out of the country. And this country's falling apart right now. Amen. That's, that, that's such a profound, wise statement from your dad. He who knows the good to do and doesn't do it, 
To him it is sin. Yeah. So I, my prayer is that the folks listening to this podcast will pass it around. If it's your first time, go like and follow us. Give us a five-star rating. Even if you don't like us, just, you know, just be kind. Show us some grace. And um, follow Pastor Rob McCoy wherever he's at. He's at Godspeak Calvary Chapel. He's an amazing pastor who lives and walks his talk. And as you can tell, you're, he's definitely worth listening to. I'm really blessed to have you as a friend and a mentor. And I, you, Keith. And I just hope that everyone out there understands that we're responsible for our inaction. So look inside your heart. Get involved at a local county level in your church. And we cannot stop speaking the truth. Yeah. Because in the absence of courage, truth's an orphan. So we're going to have to get out and speak. And uh, pass this podcast around. I hope it blesses you. I know it blessed me last night listening to these stories. And remember... We have to trust the Lord. His kingdom is here and now because that is the only way that we're going to keep freedom rolling. Cutting down to the truth through history and experience. This is The Scalpel with Dr. Keith Rose. Consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Connect with The Scalpel on Twitter at The Scalpel Edge, on Instagram and Facebook at The Scalpel Podcast, or the website scalpeledge.com. Another episode is coming soon. Subscribe and share today wherever you listen to podcasts. And let's keep freedom rolling. Freedom rolling.